0: Hello, hello, (laughs) and welcome back to our OCD family community. I hope everyone has had a great week so far. I live in the Midwest, which is really east of the midpoint of the United States, but we still call it that anyway. And why is the Midwest called the Midwest? The Midwest was invented, apparently, in the 19th century. And, quote, to describe the state's of the old Northwest Ordinance, a term that became outdated once the nation spread to the Pacific coast. End quote. So, is it, is it a big surprise, I suppose, that we never updated the term long after it was not relevant? I don't know. That might be another episode for another day. But today, I'm so glad you're tuning in for this episode because we are going to be talking about research. So settle in, and let's dive in to another fresh helping of OCD family goodness. I'm Nicole Morris, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Mental Health Correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So last Friday, my kiddos had fall break, which was it was one day. But hey, one day, we'll take what we can get. It's a break, and uh, we ended up spending the day by just having time together. And you know, as evening rolled in, we played a few pretty cutthroat games of Candyland. That's right, Candyland. Very, very cutthroat. Very, very riveting. But the kids had a blast. We had fun. It was as great as you can imagine Candyland being. And hey, nothing says family like Candyland, right? Especially a young family. I have to say, I won most of the games we played, which, I mean, I'd like to say that I'm just a pretty awesome game player, but with Candyland, the game is somewhat predetermined, you know? Based on the shuffling of the cards and the number of players playing, that's how the cards are stacked. No matter how we play it, no matter what we do, we might feel the anxiety or excitement regarding whether we will win, because we don't know the order of the cards. But we are dealing with the cards we are dealt, whether it moves us forward, or sets us back or keeps us stuck. And I started to think about this in comparison to life, to the cards that were dealt, because that is the kind of fun I am at parties. <laughs> and how within OCD, there's so much angst and fear about what is the next card going to be? What if it's this card? You see, OCD would love for us to live in tear of the stacked deck in our Candyland lives. It's predetermined, and even if you're going to lose, if you just know what's going to happen next, maybe you can cope with it. Maybe, yeah? No? So you better know what's going to happen next. Or if it's already happened. Yeah, we better check on that stat. Yeah, mm-hmm. And be ready. Be alert. Because just because you're getting closer to the castle doesn't mean you won't be transported back to where you started. And we are dealt some cards in life, aren't we? Whether we like it or not, we have biological cards that predisposition or raise our risk factors for certain outcomes. We have family cards that we are born into, which can provide immense obstacles or great advantages and privilege. We have these unique individual creative brains that help man to be able to walk on the moon, develop life-saving treatments, medical procedures, even creating the interwebs. But these amazing brains are also capable of experiencing incredible distress, feeling immeasurable pain, and can be absolutely crippled by fear. The good news? is no matter how many players there are in life and no matter what cards we already have in our decks, we aren't defined by the cards in our life. There is no sure thing. And that may be terrifying or it may feel pretty freeing, but either way, it is what it is. We don't know what card will turn up next. And we have the ability To create new cards, new possibilities, new ways of learning that will and do change lives. You may be at high risk for cancer and never draw that card. You may be at low risk for cancer and still get it. But whether that card is in our deck or not, no amount of practice, shuffling, or checking will improve our ability to know. And unlike Candyland, the outcome isn't fixed from the start. These new cards, the addition of some new players and or uh, losses of some others they do impact our present right here right now because at the end of the day we can create new cards and we could also fall back to a pepperminty forest with a weird looking elf but we can keep playing And so, to segue this in a completely natural way, right? Yeah? Yeah? (laughs) We are talking with Dr. Eric Storch today, and we are going to be talking about some of these cards in our Candyland life that can make such a profound difference in how we live, how we play, and how we keep moving toward our values of getting to our castles. And that is with research. Research is super important, as you've heard me and a lot of our guests discuss the importance of evidence based practices. But how can we make sense of it? How can we apply it? And what do we do to support it? Because again, in this Candyland life, we can help create new cards, new strategies. It's not just some lab somewhere creating cards for us, it's everyday people bravely saying, Hey, we struggle too and they're stepping up or into research, and we have better cards for it. Also, I'd like to note that Eric has been a mentor and a guide for me in my own OCD training as he co-chairs the Behavioral Therapy Training Institute through the International OCD Foundation. And I have to say, for an esteemed researcher so deeply involved in groundbreaking and wave-making research in our field, He's also just a really humble and pretty entertaining guy. I'm impressed how he is so giving of his time, despite an incredibly busy schedule, y'all, and how gracious and supportive he is of lifting others up in this field. It's not an us-them. It's a we. And he leads by example in affirming and cheering with us along the way. We're better together, family. We are better together. And that includes everyone. From the sufferers, to the families, to the practitioners, to the researchers, all of us contribute to creating new cards, new opportunities forward. All of us experience setbacks or sticky moments from time to time, but we are better together. And in time, we can all make it to our own castles. So let's talk with Eric a bit about his journey and how he found himself involved with OCD research. We'll talk a bit more about his background, and then we're going to just talk about some different studies and how they impact us as a community. So, are you ready? Let's get to it. So, Eric, you're the professor and vice chair of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Baylor College of Medicine, the vice chair of psychology as well at Baylor College of Medicine, and the head of psychology, you were just like hitting it out of the park over there. Yeah, <laughs> you've, you have too many publications to count at this point, which is a good problem to have, especially for us, because we can always use more research, more understanding on what's happening. But not only do you publish in scientific journals, you've also edited and co edited many books, you do a lot of presentations with IOCDF, you do the presentations with ABCT. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're also a member of International OCD Foundation Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, Anxiety and Depression Association of America. I mean, you're a busy guy and uh, doing lots of different research. And what I thought we could talk about today is breaking down some of that research so that we as the support community, as loved ones for OCD sufferers can just gain more information on how to help and support our loved ones so thank you so much for coming on today eric i really appreciate you being here
1: yeah no completely my pleasure and and thanks for making me sound like like such a nerd i I promise at least a touch bit cooler than than that description
0: well i I, erica's fun times and no pressure it's on (laughs) it's on okay so what I would like to ask first is, so you got, you got your PhD with Columbia University. It looks like you maybe went to Florida after that, your license in Florida and Texas. And so what brought you originally into the OCD field? Were you working on that for like your Dissert or what brought you into the wonderful world of OCD and related disorders?
1: Man, I, you know, the thing I always... I always think about is that book that, that everyone gets when they graduate high school by Dr. Seuss, The Places You'll Go. Mm-hmm. And, and that in some ways, that's sort of in the career path that I've, I've taken. And when I was up in New York, I mostly worked with kids that had anxiety. And I was really, really, really fortunate to, to get to University of Florida, where I had a few incredible mentors, like Wayne Goodman, who's my current boss, and Gary Gefkin and Tanya Murphy. And so but when I was there, it was a combination of being in the right place at the right time with the right people and the right population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just fell in love with working with OCD and I fell in love with exposure therapy because it, it made a ton of sense in terms of how you can kind of confront things and then learn about how the world works vis-a-vis confronting
0: Yeah. That's that's great. And, you know, in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy, ERP exposure and response prevention is a branch of that. Although sometimes I kind of hear ERP thrown around synonymously with CBT and not all CBT is ERP, but you happen, it sounds like you happen to be in a place. Did you do a fellowship down in Florida? Yeah.
1: So I did my, my internship and then postdoc there and, and then was fortunate to to get a job for, for about four years at University of Florida, and then a decade at University of South Florida.
0: Okay. So, and you were linked with your current boss there down at University of Florida. So you were probably coming into that postdoc, getting to dive into some of the dynamic research already being done. Can you remember the first research project or grant that you were a part of and what that experience was like?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm totally gonna walk past the fact that you were sort of nicely saying that I'm like really old. Um, but but yeah. Was I nicely saying that? I heard that's what I heard. Well, at but,
0: least it's nice, uh, I guess.
1: <laughs> well, it's definitely true as well. No. But you know, we we did a couple studies that that were really focused on on you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, with exposure, response prevention. Mm-hmm. And and then the first grant I got was one where we looked at this medicine called desipramine to see if it could kind of target the mechanism that we think takes place in exposure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so what I found in that case is that it didn't. But but I was fortunate to be supported by the International OCD Foundation for that that project. Mm-hmm. And then also a lot about clinical trials work. And then from there we've just sort of taken off trying to answer different questions.
0: Yeah. So clinical trials is kind of an elusive kind of concept, I think, for some people. If they watch ads or you know, stream things nowadays, every, the ads have gotten really tricky. You're like, I will not pay for cable. and I don't have to watch a commercial. And it's everywhere. But people will hear about clinical trials mentioned in different pharmaceutical commercials. If you live in California, you probably get 8,000 props pitched for voting on, on different pharmaceuticals. That might be my bias from living there. And, you know, I, I think that in theory at face value, people kind of can understand or appreciate clinical trials as you're trying this out on people or you're, you're sampling with groups. But can you talk about the importance of clinical trials in terms of supporting evidence-based? Because I think now with the with the reach of social media and the platform, everybody in a way can have their own platform. Sometimes there's a lot of information out there, but it's not necessarily evidence-based. It's not necessarily backed or supported or showing significant differences in these clinical trials. And so can you talk a little bit about the piece with clinical trials and why that is important when we're thinking about research and OCD or any disorder for that matter?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in short, we need Data that support what we're doing, and and so what has happened in the field of, of psychiatry and psychology is that for many many years that, that just didn't exist, and so sometimes it was you know I, I involved ideas being put forward without corresponding evidence. Sometimes it's just someone saying something loud enough and often enough until people believe it.
2: Mm-hmm. But at the
1: end of the day, if if we want this field to be taken as seriously as it should, we need to be able to provide interventions that are based on corresponding evidence. and we need to understand for whom certain interventions work or don't work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, and so I think that's a big part of where we've really dedicated in my career. You know when I when I started, there's a lot of evidence for different medications. Mm-hmm. There was new evidence on exposure therapy for adults with OCD, but not much at all on kids. And, mm. and when I look back right now, there's this element of pride, actually, that, that most of the questions that we needed to answer, we have answered. Mm-hmm. Like, what treatments work well? You know, for whom do they work well? You know, what's the order of progression of interventions? And then uh, we've been fortunate that some of the other kind of outstanding questions that remain, like the real big ones, we're in the process of answering.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: for example, now we just got a grant that looks at can you treat people to wellness with CBT and then effectively withdraw their medication? This is in kids. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then a a different grant I'll talk about is one where we're looking at the genetics of OCD and, and Latinos. And so while we're understanding more and more about genetics and so on, the key part of this is this untapped frontier of how do we get the things that work and we know work down to you know people in Guatemala, people in Honduras, people you know in uh, Chile, and and so that's a big part of this other project is that dissemination piece.
0: Yeah, so the the first grant that you were talking about actually you were awarded a breakthrough award at the 27th IOCDF conference in Denver just this past summer. And that would be the CBT augmentation to promote medication discontinuation in pediatric OCD, right? That's it. <laughs> you know, the, the casual term for it. And so I think this is actually, this is definitely one I wanted to touch base on because there is research showing that medication alone is not as effective as ERP in the treatment of OCD, but the combination also can be successful. And I think there is a fear, especially since SSRIs that are typically prescribed end up going to high dosage amounts, and we're looking at pediatrics. Parents have concerns about their their kiddos being on medication. Is this going to have to be forever? Could it be altering their brain chemistry or could it be, you know, something that they're going to be dependent on for the rest of their life? And so you were referencing that in adults. And so now the trial is really looking at children and seeing, you know, can we discontinue medication and maintain functioning or what is what does that tell me more about that? Because I'm sure parents would love to know more about that.
1: Yeah, totally. You know, that the adult study that Blair Simpson did, which is really a beautiful study, he kind of found these these two big things. So one is if you treated adults with O C D to remission, so they don't really have functional O C D anymore, if you had half of that group continue with their medicine and then the other half withdraw it and they didn't know just mm-hmm. uh, someone a blinded rater who was the one reading this how they do. So what you found is, is on the, the main way we measure OCD, the Y box, they were about the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's awesome. but in the group that withdrew their medicine there were more instances where symptoms got worse which suggests that for some people they really need medicine you know for, for a more extended period mm-hmm. and, and that's you know that good information. Now here, we're trying to find the same thing. Like, are there people that, are there kids where this is a good strategy or are there kids where they really do need to maintain their medicines for a long period of time? Mm -hmm. And and I think these are all open questions. Yeah. Our goal is, is that we treat those, before we even consider that, we get the OCD down so low that it wouldn't really be problematic.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And so that's kind of our target with all this. Yeah. Uh, but we're just starting right now, you know, a project that's, while super exciting, has so many moving parts in terms of, you know, getting ethics board approval, setting up our pharmacy I and mean, all these things.
0: Right. That makes sense. And in terms of having kind of controlling for different factors, so in a lot of research studies, there's going to be... A- as much as possible controls for kind of confounding variables that could affect results. And so I would imagine we're looking at families that are fairly involved if they've been able to decrease OCD to a certain amount. But can you speak to how does the family piece kind of factor into that, because I would think it would be easy if there was an improvement in someone's OCD symptoms to kind of relax a little bit on the strategies and towing certain lines and accommodations at home. And so how do you guys kind of control for that family piece? And can we just kind of speak to some of what the, the family is experiencing in that?
1: Sure. I, I think a big part to it is, is really keeping a family-based approach to treatment, having frequent visits, it, encouraging diligence in in you know monitoring where symptoms are, as well as providing feedback when we monitor where those sim- symptoms are.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But but you're absolutely right. I mean whether it's this study or more broadly, being able to keep encouraging an, an exposure-based lifestyle where you confront things that are difficult right away in a direct fashion and really garner support of all stakeholders, all the people who love the kid. That's an ongoing battle and even when you get to the point of of someone doing really really well mm-hmm. you still keep encouraging that that approach yeah uh, yeah
0: so in terms of where people were coming into this study were they coming in you said you're helping get the OCD pretty low so were they coming in kind of to treatment? At higher levels, and then are we looking at like a certain Y box number or below to know kind of if they're at the lower level or not? Yeah,
1: you nailed it. That's exactly the model of having people come in with meaningful OCD, treating them in a flexible period of time to try to get them to the point where their OCD is kind of below that that cutoff of you know really being something you would come in for help, and then from there that flip of the coin randomization to either continue medicine or to withdraw that medicine. The part that I think is also neat is that we're doing it throughout Texas, so there are a couple of visits that you have to come in person, but by and large, it's, it's mostly virtual, mm-hmm. so that we're able to take this treatment, study that does provide free therapy, and try to get it out to most pe- or to more people.
0: Okay. So in thinking about this, I know John Abramo was, was on the podcast a month or so ago, and I know when we did. So I, I don't know if I clarified this, but I I was BTTI trained under Dr. Storch. We got to have early morning conference calls discussing cases, ERP, all sorts of things for a couple months there, which was always fun i'm on the east coast so it was not as early for me as it was for some of the rest of you guys but you know one thing we talked about in behavioral therapy training institute and something dr abramowitz has talked about and is true is that we can see a lot of results we can look at 12 weeks or 14 weeks and we can say hey this is going to be really effective for treatment if you have kiddos coming in at a higher level How far have they engaged? Have they gone through an entire treatment cycle by the time you've Y-boxed them? And is there a consideration of, okay, well, they've already had some ERP treatment? Because I know that coming in, obviously, someone is going to be functioning and engaging in ERP at a different level as they are at the end of treatment. So I was wondering kind of what that looked like had they gone through, like had the sample size gone through at least one full trial of ERP or where were you kind of catching them in terms of their exposure to exposure and response prevention?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question and sort of a, it, something of a delicate one. Like you wanna get, have as realistic of a population as possible, but you also wanna have folks that have a reasonable chance of, of improving because again that first phase is what we call an open trial so everyone gets gets cbt with exposure and response prevention and so if someone's had like you know 50 hours of that before we want to want to have them get into this start them up because they've had so much of it
2: mm-hmm.
1: what we're doing is we're just keeping it as a naturalistic as, natural, as naturalistic as possible so we're looking at like a full course of ERP, you know, of an expert like yourself who, you Shucks. know, together with that antidepressant. yeah, and, and so that's sort of the, you know, one of the things that there would be a rule out. Now, well, kids can have tons of, you know, different trials of antidepressants. That's okay. And then a whole bunch of other co-occurring problems that too are fine as long as that OCD is the big one. What I've found in the OCD literature is that it, sometimes people criticize clinical trials as being pristine find that like people with OCD often have lots of other things and those people are reflected in these studies. And so I think we have pretty good estimates of how well this, this stuff works mm-hmm. when applied to, you know, people in the real world.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of comorbidities and, you know, anxiety or the distress, the anxious distress people have. I mean, I think that's thought of commonly, but depression, eating disorder, Tourette's, ADHD, ASD, we could espouse quite a list here of different co-occurring things and disorders that can happen in tandem with OCD. And I think that's a, a really, a really good point. Another kind of question just kind of just popped up for me. I know, depending on the severity that the sufferer has had at a certain point, maybe they have had to max out an SSRI and, and uh, have gone into augmentation with a second-generation antipsychotic. Do you guys have, was anybody in the study at that level on like an SGA? Because I know that sometimes, depending on the SGA, as I've learned from some of the amazing OCD psychiatrists in this field, that can exasperate the OC symptoms. And so I would imagine coming off that medication would certainly... Be helpful, but I would imagine too. By the time they're coming into the study, if they had a history, that that would have been long gone.
1: Yeah, yeah. Another great point again. So people can have different histories of, of medicines, mm-hmm. um, and and that's fine. But but here we really want to isolate it. So if someone, let's say, was on an antidepressant and you know an atypical antipsychotic. That would rule them out of this study because then we'd be toying around with not just you know one medicine but two medicines and the potential interaction between those medicines mm-hmm. now there are a few examples of where we would keep someone in like if they were on an adhd medicine um we'd keep them stable on that for example yeah. but, but those things are kind of some of the complicating factors within a study of this sort
0: yeah well that's it's fascinating and I think it's gonna be really exciting to follow along and and see what the outcomes are because I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of buy-in for sure of parents wanting to be able to get their kiddos off of medication if it's gonna be safe, but they also don't want to drive up the hell of the obsessions and the compulsions. So yeah, it, it's gonna be really important to see what comes of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I am up to and we'll keep you posted.
0: Excellent. You were re- referencing in the other research study, which I believe was your Latin American Trans Ancestry Initiative for OCD Genomics. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, just some light reading I was <laughs> going over. <laughs> Actually, I have a funny story. So your colleague, we have a professional cohort group on social media where she was kind of giving a little reminder pitch about the Latino study because you don't have social media. And someone had said, well, Eric should get on here and and create a social media. Where is he at? And, And I believe the comment was floated out that you would rather have a stroke than create a social media account, most likely. And so it's funny I mean you're a busy person you're doing all this research but it's it's kind of novel that you're not on social media
1: yeah it, it feels like work <laughs> and uh and you know I and I and I appreciate that we have to like you know my my lab we got a twitter account and you know I'll, I'll like dabble on that although I my etiquette I think is quite poor because I'll you know if I ever post something I like like it and apparently you shouldn't do that but. <laughs> Why else would you post it? But uh yeah, but the, the Facebook thing always felt like work to me. And now now it's like a principle.
0: Yeah. Well and also I would imagine now you're so well connected in the web of research, you don't necessarily have to engage at that level. But it was, I thought, oh, I should ask him. I happen to be talking to him tomorrow. (laughs) So tell us more about the Latino study because even when we were doing our consultation groups, I wanna say the study was still looking for more participants. So we'd love to know more because also within our listening audience, there may be people that would be good candidates for this.
1: Totally, totally. Now this study I think is one of the most important ones that we'll ever do and, and on so many levels. So, so, the Latino study it is, is a project looking at genetics of OCD among Latin Americans. So, when you think about genetics research, it's really unlikely that there's going to be discovered a gene for OCD. Mm-hmm. Instead, what's a little bit more likely is that you're able to see different hits on certain genes, that when you add those up, so to speak, mm-hmm. you start uh, finding ways of generating scores called polygenic risk scores. That suggests the risk that someone may have OCD or someone's child may have OCD. Mm-hmm. Now, to date, there's been a, a lot of really excellent work in, in kind of selecting biological samples among people with OCD, but 95% of those are among European Caucasians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, what ends up happening is when you do that, you can derive models, uh, predictive models of OCD that are only relevant for people who are European Caucasian, mm-hmm. which basically leaves out. People who are Latino, people who are Asian, people who are Black. And so you end up having this this kind of contribution to health disparities. So when you think of the field of OCD or psychiatry in general, mm-hmm. a lot of it's all about, you know, stuff like how do we develop personalized, you know, medicine, you know, where we match a therapy or a medication with a person's genetic profile. Mm-hmm. But if that is only based on European Caucasians, yeah. you fail three-fourths of the world. Right. And so that's kind of the core of this study. Now, we've recruited about 50 sites in 15 countries south of the US, as well as actually in Canada and mm-hmm. the US as well. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is collecting saliva samples from people with OCD, as well as asking questions for about a couple hours as well about mm-hmm. OCD, the past history, and so on. Now, what we struggled with right away was how do you define Latin American? Mm-hmm. And so the you know the struggle is that everyone's mixed, and and so in this case we define that as you know that one of your four grandparents is is of some sort of Latin American ancestry, mm-hmm. uh, which they lived in, they were born in one of the you know countries, they were born in the Caribbean, or come from a, a lineage uh, Latino. Heritage, sure, and and so from there, it, it's really about you know engaging them in that saliva sample, which is basically like spitting in a tube, uh-huh. uh, and then that interview. Now, this is one of those grassroots efforts that's all about doing research to help out you and your children and your grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Simple as that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, when, if there are people who sort of meet that criteria, either. Having a history of OCD or have current OCD and have one of their grandparents who who are Latin American, then just check out the website latinostudy.org and there'll be information about how you can participate. We do it all by Zoom or in person if you're in Houston, and then we mail out saliva kits to mail back with us, pay you sort of a, a measly $25. But but this one's all about how do we we really diversify our our genetic samples so we can have predictive models of OCD that reflect our world.
0: Yeah, so that's outstanding. You said latinostudy.org. Right, Uh and I will link that. I'm going to link all sorts of information. I have the flyer that I can download from that social media platform, (laughs) so I will also include that on the post about this episode's podcast. And you can find go there to find more information about Eric and the dynamic work he's doing as well. But yeah, I mean, I I think that's really, really important because, especially if there could be genetic variances that could increase treatment outcomes it's important for us to be able to explore that and it's it's a privilege whether you want to admit it or not the the caucasians they have most of the research and yeah i think this is really really helpful
1: yeah well great great points and and one thing i that i love about this project is it's a true collaboration with ocd uh, experts across the world. Mm-hmm. So my, my counterpart is a brilliant geneticist at UNC, Jim Crowley. And then we have it's so many leaders in Latin America, in Canada, in the U.S. who are, are engaged that I wouldn't want to name them because I wouldn't want to um, leave someone out. But right. but it's really these stars are, uh, across all these areas. And not only is the goal to collect more samples, but but it's really how do we build out the infrastructure? So, for example, the BTIs that, that we've, behavioral therapy institutes that we've done throughout the U.S., now we're, we're figuring out how we're able to, to like do trainings in Peru and Colombia, you know, in Argentina and so That's on. Great. great. And, and so it's really building out this exposure therapy network and psychiatry network and genetics research network throughout all these other countries. And yeah. so I think some of the some of that will be the legacy that this this study it sort of leaves behind.
0: I love that because the diversity is needed. We need you know this is an international problem. If you have a, if you're a human with a brain, you've had an intrusive thought. But OCD runs across the world, and we need to be able to have great people that are doing research all over the world that have understanding of things that regionally can affect and we're looking at these biological pieces which is also really exciting to see kind of the advancements that you're being able to make so correct me if I'm wrong my layman understanding of this it's imagine kind of like a a, a, a kind of a Venn diagram of overlapping we're noticing this correlation that when you have these different genetic markers there is consistent kind of association with ocd symptoms and genetically which can then impact treatment course recommendations for different people of different genetic makeup is that would that be a good way of saying it or is that kind of a little clunky
1: yeah no i it it speaks to the complexity of this we think that there are there are a whole bunch of factors that, that may predict who has OCD. And then there, there are other factors that, even on top of that, that may predict how well things like medications or therapies work. And, and so what we want to do is make sure that any of those models that we generate are really accounting for mm-hmm. you know, different kind of ethnicities or, you know, or ancestries. And, and and that's what this study is doing is it's taking this you know, sample pool, which really is is pretty Homogeneous. And now we're we're saying, well, wait, the world works quite differently as a function of things like ancestry. And so that's I think the big, big part of the the study that was funded. Yeah. And what Jim and I are doing together with our our you know many, many brilliant colleagues is saying, well, let's use this as a platform to start doing trainings in exposure therapy, or doing trainings in how to do the Y Box or Pharmacotherapy. I and I think that that would be that that sort of idea behind this.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and yeah, I can't wait to hear what what comes of this as this is growing. And you've now, I want to say, last year you were you were you know still collecting more information, how long do you anticipate this kind of open call to people to participate would be just to kind of give folks an idea in case something, in case they do kind of encounter something where they go, oh, we are dealing with OCD, we could maybe participate in this.
1: <laughs> yeah, this would been going on for a while. So we're, we're collecting 5,000 samples and, and we just started you brought something earlier that's so important and uh, and really, frankly, is a reason why I'm now, like, fully bald as opposed to just like, starting to go receiving. Now that's true, by the way. Um, but, uh, but like, the paperwork for this study is amazingly painful. Um, <laughs> and, um, and and so we've had, you know, a bunch of folks working so diligently on our team and Jim's team moving through this as well as across all the sites now, one of our close partners is Carol Cappy and, and Yuri Miguel in San Paulo. And so together, we've really been kind of plowing forward on this. But I think at this point, we are about, collected about 3% of the sample. So back There's the next years, we'll be cranking.
0: Yeah. Can you, you know, since you said... Essentially, you're going for an an NF 5,000 here, a sample size of 5,000. Can you talk about, with our community here, why it's important to have such a large sample? Because I think think that's important. And as we're kind of putting on our kind of thinking cap about different research, when someone says, oh, this is research-based, you know, looking at the sample size can make a really important difference. Because if you're sampling three people... And w- and it helps two people, then that's a super effective study. But it's a study of three people. So can you talk with the, with us a little bit about why that's important to collect these five thousand people as participants, and why if you fit in this category, even if it's like oh I could get to that sometime, why that could be really dynamic for them to kind of just take take a few minutes and and check out the website, maybe shoot off an email and say sure I'm interested.
1: Absolutely. So one of them is being adequately powered statistically to do this. And so in genetics work, it's all about people playing together well. No one group can do this. Whether it's like in Jim in my case, he has a lot of expertise in genetics. I know something about O C D and together we make sort of the perfect team. That's you know, part of the idea of, of all working together, but recruiting enough people mm-hmm. that it allows you to start making some conclusions. Now, the 5,000 people aren't just alone. So, so we have colleagues who have been collecting samples of people without OCD in Colombia and Brazil and Chile and Mexico. And so we're able to start doing comparisons there as well. Yeah. And then on top of that, we're able to combine our samples with people who have collected other samples with OCD to start answering more questions. But the genetics world is really an a, a elegant example of how people work effectively together to mm-hmm. make scientific discoveries that are able to really improve you know, both our understanding of OCD, but also how we're able to treat it effectively.
0: Yeah, I I love that emphasis because I think especially in a day and age like now where just coming off the heels of the pandemic, across the different countries, different political situations happening, it can feel so polarized. And then you see something like this and you go, actually there are good things happening. We don't always hear about the good things. It's not catchy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a sexy headline. But there's some good there are definitely good things happening and this is this is so important. And so if you fit within that category of having at least one grandparent with a Latino heritage and if you're not sure can I say just have them ask like are yeah. on the side of like of course I fit don't worry about it like ask if you're if you're not sure if that fits because I think this was this is so important And it's something, it's a way we as the community can help respond. And I love that because it's not only then professionals coming together, researchers coming together under a united cause, but we, the people, can come in and say, okay, well, cultural diversity matters. It matters in my mental health. It matters in my physical health. It matters in every single way. And so if you are interested and you qualify for the study, that would be an awesome contribution. You could be part of the wave maker here.
1: Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, I, I think it's that and it's awesome. It, it's a way of encouraging and supporting how do we take the work that we've done here in disseminating the treatments that we know work How do we bring it to Bolivia? How do we bring it to Paraguay or Honduras? And and that, to me, is is where we're going to make huge strides. Um, Because I guarantee you, if you're Honduran, there's not an exposure therapist, but there are brilliant, brilliant therapists out there. Mm -hmm. And so if we're able to have an inroads to engaging, we can make a very significant
0: impact uh, on the world. Yeah, and you know, one of one of our mottos here at the OCD Family Podcast is that we're better together, and it's true. We are we are better together, and especially if you if your loved one is in ERP right now, for better or worse, you know the efficacy of it. But it's hard work, right? But like you're saying, there are some countries that have absolutely brilliant, amazing, caring, compassionate people that don't have just don't have the knowledge or the training yet. Yet, And so this is a great opportunity to bring something and not only bring something, but in a culturally appropriate way that isn't presumptive of what works here should work for you. But just looking and saying, okay, what are some of the specific pieces that we can lean into even genetically and cater treatment to? So I think that is, that's really exciting. I have a question about another study. So it looks like you maybe were diving into this one a couple years ago, but it's one that I don't think people know a ton about. If you're new to the OCD field, you probably don't know anything about it. Pediatric deep brain stimulation. So I saw that a couple years ago you were doing some work on PDBS, if you want to like Think of PBS and add a D in the middle, <laughs> people here in the States. But PDBS, there was a study we're doing on pediatric deep brain stimulation. And I think when it comes to brain stimulation, people are like, mm, I don't know. I don't know what to, I don't understand it necessarily. So can you talk a little bit about that study that you were a part of?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so so I want to be super clear. We are not talking about doing deep brain stimulation on kids. Okay, um, thank you. But, but uh, I mean, yeah, maybe my own kids, but but here's sort of the, the idea. So deep brain stimulation is a a neurosurgical treatment that's safe, rarely used with adults with refractory OCD. These are folks that have tried everything, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of those of ERP, um, three or four antidepressants, you know, together with antipsychotics, like, I mean, you have had to fail a lot of, of treatment before that's even considered. And, and you know what? It works really well, like mm-hmm. really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so here's the thing that's happened uh, with DBS. that the, There are some instances where it is being used with children.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, it, you know, people think of DBS, and I think in an unfortunate sense, it may conjure up images of like lobotomies and so on. Mm-hmm. Totally different. In fact, for movement disorders among older people, DBS has been done hundreds of thousands of times. Hmm. And so OCD is just a different area of the brain um, where it interrupts the circuitry that's involved in OCD. Now, as this has become more and more regularly used among adults, there have been instances where its application has been examined in kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so not with OCD, but teenagers with Tourette's, syndrome, or kids, uh, even young kids with dystonia. And and so there have been some pretty positive effects. But what we wanted to do was sort of understand the ethical issues associated with deep brain stimulation in kids, whether it was for dystonia, like where it's being done,
2: mm-hmm. or
1: the potential that it could be used in a neuropsychiatric condition at some point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not that it is or can be, but maybe one day it could be. And so that's the whole purpose of this study is understanding people's perceptions and thoughts and concerns and potential benefits of, of doing this procedure.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely something that a lot of people don't understand and they think of kind of horror stories or you know film kind of adaptations where they might show something where there's kind of some kind of shock therapy happening of some sort. And you know it, the media just always nails it in terms of therapies and what we do in the field ethically. It's a, it's like you know reading a page out of the journal, but, but, but it's it's important to kind of understand because you can hear it out there if you're Googling because, you know, everybody feels better after Googling a condition. <laughs> you mm-hmm. Google OCD and you can see things like that. And so it's good that it's being explored, especially in terms of perception. I think perception is a huge piece to understand. And, you know, there was another study too that I was seeing that you were running during COVID talking about the perception that clinicians were experiencing with doing ERP over telehealth, video sessions, and all of that. And I know that there's definitely families listening or partners of loved ones that have been doing ERP via telehealth. And so that research study, I want to say, kind of started maybe last year in 2021, or may have springboarded long before that, but put into motion. And so we were talking a little bit before we started recording just about kind of some of the pros and cons of Zoom in terms of trainings and whatnot. But what have you guys found, or is it a little too early to tell in, ter- in terms of the research study on perception of trying to do ERP via telehealth? And also, did you collect feedback from families as well?
1: Yeah. So so this, this project was just just among clinicians and you know it, it, and a lot of times you guys including our team are on the front lines so uh, hearing from them and their perceptions that we thought was really meaningful you know i think this is a tricky one i i i think that telepsych has been a godsend in many ways but but there have been some challenges too so there are plenty of people where it's really not a good fit. You know, a kid with ADHD, someone with substance, someone who's pretty suicidal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there are definitely instances where it's not good, not as helpful. Now, on the other hand, boy, there are a lot of moments where where it's fantastic. Like, you know, Texas has these incredible urban centers, but a lot of space in between them. Mm-hmm. And so being able to help someone who lives, you know, in a rural community is terrific or houston's known for good food you know and a lot of traffic and and being able to avoid that is also something really really helpful as well right Uh, and so i think again a lot of game changing aspects to it but we want to make sure that we're mindful of of matching the right treatment with the right, a certain clinical presentation.
0: Right. Yeah. So there's definitely an importance in having access. I guess access is probably the good term because if you could choose either or and one works better for you, that's great. But having access to either or, because there are different advantages to to both. As we wrap up today, Eric, if People listening are interested in getting to know more about research. I know often to access journals beyond the abstract, you need a professional kind of like account or a subscription to some of these journals. Where would you recommend directing people if they want to know more about the research going on, if they want to get better informed about evidence bases and and what's Mm -hmm. substantial and what's not?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, one of the ways that I that I really encourage is going on pubmed.gov. Mm-hmm. And and you don't get to access a lot of the journals, um, but, but you get the abstracts. And it's sort of like a Google for, you know, research. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all research of, of any condition. So, you know, you could put in, you know, OCD cognitive behavioral therapy, and a bunch of articles will come up and you can look through those.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Google Scholar is surprisingly pretty good too so that's another area to check out and you know and then you know i I think looking at at different you know people's websites the international cd foundation's terrific yeah you know some of the the work you and others are doing and come you know is spreading you know spreading the word also is terrific yeah um so yeah 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 i mean all these things i think are incredible resources and you know and in research is well, we don't get discoveries if people don't participate in it. Right. And so sometimes it's really easy, like the Latino study, spit in a tube, answer some questions. Um, yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's more elaborate, but, but at the same time, some of those studies really can offer great care. Mm-hmm. Um, people are struggling or don't have, you know, insurance or, or you know, ways of paying for stuff.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. And, and you know, a, any publication worth its weight in gold, even if it's a write-up or a commentary on research... Should be citing, absolutely should be citing the research and the articles that they're drawing information from. And so, if you even if you cut and paste that citation in a Google search bar and be like, Where can I find out more information? or you see one of the authors and you can find out where they're doing work, whether it's research or teaching, is also a great way to be able to follow up. So, well, thank you for that, Eric. It's great, it's great seeing you again, and it's great hearing about all the work that you're doing. You're such a busy guy and so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us more and yeah keep up the great work it's been it's been really fun to just be able to follow along and go hey i know that guy i know him He's well, pretty, you're a pretty big deal eric so uh, this this is great
1: well i you know what i, I say the exact same thing about you and <laughs> um you know and no and, and it's spreading the word and it is setting up that this is the norm and i i so believe so believe that you know, we've worked so hard of establishing the treatments to work and in, you know, kind of setting that culture up in our field is critical for the people that we we serve, as well as our future generation of therapists. So I, I am so appreciative to you for doing this. I am great to see you. It's great to talk to you. And we'll look forward to, you know, 2023. In San Francisco. Right
0: oh there. man, I can't wait. I love I love Norcal. I love SF. So that's going to be great. Well, thank you, and really appreciate it, Eric. Thanks, yeah. again. I really appreciate uh, it. Okay,
1: I'll catch
0: you later. Thank you for that. Well, that was just great, and it's been so helpful to have Eric break down some of the research about OCD with all of us. And these studies are so important, and they address some important questions that bubble up for us. If my loved one goes on medication, will they need to stay on it long term? Sometimes no. But sometimes, based on that person's brain chemistry and research, yes. And what does that mean? Or the Latino study, which is just so incredibly imperative to not only treatment, but sharing access to the vault of research and evidence-based conclusions we've already discovered in the past 50 years. We have incredible organizations like Doctors Without Borders that brings basic needs like food and water, in addition to life-saving healthcare and procedures, and it reaches out all over the world. But what about mental healthcare? And what about the lives we can help save together by bringing knowledge research, and culturally inclusive treatment to people across the world. Well, as we learned today, we can be a part of it. So for my intrusive thoughts application today, which if you're new to us is the portion of the show where I try to provide some practical application points that we, the OCD family community, can practice here and now, this is a call to join in the research in at least one way. You can help us all learn more about our Candyland cards that are already in our biological genetic deck, and you can help create new cards, new resources for a world aching for hope. We're better together. So if you have at least one grandparent of Latino heritage, please head on over to Latinostudy.org. You don't have to have an official diagnosis of OCD, just past or present presentations of OCD symptoms and one grandparent of Latino heritage. If you're not sure, err on the side of checking it out, because this is an opportunity for you, your loved ones, your family, to create scientific discoveries and extending access of treatment and research to other parts of the world. Also, Eric shared about great resources like PubMed.gov and Google Scholar. You can search for research on any condition, including OCD. And it's a great opportunity to learn more about what the research is, what's worked reliably for some of our loved ones, and what's outdated. Just like the term Midwest. Oh yeah, full circle moment. I love that for us. Full circle. <laughs> if you are a clinician, behavioral aide, or a student, check out ERP and what other evidence-based practices are helping or hurting. And do you just want to go to a place where we can break down the articles and the abstracts from the source, from the research, and trust that it's not being injected with personal biases? Well, then you're in luck, because you can go to iocdf.org. The International OCD Foundation features a ton of resources from evidence-based research that is packaged in, mm -hmm, shall we say, easier-to-digest portions? But you can trust that the information is coming from the research, and that is very important. And as long as we're talking about research and clinical trials, Eric referenced something toward the end here that I think is worth revisiting. Different clinical trials have different levels of involvement. So for the Latino study, for example, it's answering some questions and spitting in a cup. But for other studies, like the Medication Discontinuation Study, and so many more, participants are getting access to evidence-based treatments, which often can be pricey, may or may not be covered by your insurance, or may not even be readily available where you live. And so it bears repeating, getting involved in clinical trials and participating is truly the teamwork that makes the dream work. So if you want to learn more about clinical trials and specific clinical trials related to OCD research at that, check out clinicaltrials.gov. That's clinicaltrials.gov and search for the keyword OCD. You can see what's on the docket, what's in process or even completed in terms of clinical trials. And for our OCD fam outside the US, I would still invite you to check it out because just as Eric showed us with the Latino study Not all studies are to a specific geographic location. And while some studies may target specific populations, there is still room for all of us to participate in some capacity. So I'll end with this note. Let's continue to stay curious, and let's continue to ask questions. The breadth of research that we have today has been born out of asking, wondering, and testing why certain interventions work and why other treatments don't. Some refer to OCD as the doubting disorder or the doubting disease because it's always riddled with these what-ifs. But what if, family, what if we reclaim some of those what-ifs back for the good? What if we could find genetic components or markers that could help advance more effective evidence-based practices in Central and South America or within families with Latino heritages? What if our children could be weaned off medication and still thrive in their recovery? What if they need that medication and we can get some better empirical answers on why? What if we are the key to helping create a new Candyland card? And better yet, what if we can help be the bridge to accessing all the wonderful opportunities our decks can offer? That's pretty special. I mean, it's just spectacular, but don't just take it from me. Let my daughter, Emma, share a few of her thoughts, too. What's your favorite thing about Candyland? All the candy. It's got all the candy, like the peppermint, the gumdrop. Do you like when we play Candyland? Yep. Do you have a favorite card? Yep. What's your favorite card in Candyland? Uh, Ice cream. Oh, the ice cream's a good one. It's near the castle. What do you do in Candyland? I was in a yellow gingerbread. And you was blue. I was blue. And where were you trying to go? The castle. And what's at the castle? Um, looks like it has a cane in it. That's so cool. That is cool. Do you like when we play Candyland? Yeah, Candyland is a good game. Can we all play together? Yeah, because it's better when we play together. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Have a great week, family, and I'll be looking forward to meeting again soon. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family, like candy land on demand. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.